0: Welcome to The Bounce Podcast, I'm Bob Lapine. I am the pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, also a member of the Board of Directors for the Great Commission Collective, and GCC is behind this podcast. This is our podcast to help strengthen local churches and to assist pastors. In fact, we call it The Bounce because we know resiliency It needs to be a part of a pastor's life and a part of our rhythm as pastors. And so we hope this podcast will help you stay strong and be resilient in the ministry that God has called you to. We're going to talk today about something that is at the heart of who we are as an organization. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Great Commission Collective, GCC is all about strengthening churches, planting new churches. And one of the things that we believe is a characteristic of a healthy church is a healthy plurality. At GCC, we promote team leadership, elder-led churches. We think it's a matter of conviction. We provide tools to equip elder teams to evaluate themselves and to grow in health. Our president, Dave Harvey, has written on this subject on the subject of pluralities and elders, and we have links in our show notes to some of the resources that Dave has created. But today we're gonna to talk about what I think is one of the missing components in a lot of churches when it comes to the leadership team, and that is the role of the deacon, the function of a deacon. And we asked Matt Smithhurst to help us with this because he's written a book on the subject, Matt is the lead pastor at River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, a church he helped plant in the last 12 months. He's written a number of books, including Before You Share Your Faith, Five Ways to Be Evangelism Ready, and Before You Open Your Bible, Nine Heart Postures for Approaching God's Word. And as I mentioned, he's written a book on deacons called Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church, and that's our focus today as we interact with Matt. So, Matt, thanks for being with us. Welcome. Glad to
1: be with you, Bob. Thanks for having me.
0: Tell everybody about your ministry context. You're planting a church currently, is that right?
1: That's right. We're here in Richmond, Virginia. And seven months ago, we planted River City Baptist Church. Uh, it's been a really fun journey we were actually sent out from a church in louisville kentucky where we were for 12 years and had a team of about 13 adults that moved from louisville to richmond uh, with a view to establishing a new gospel witness so it's been really gratifying and uh yeah preaching through mark's gospel every week and just watching the, the lord's word do its work
0: what would you tell yourself 12 months ago that you wish you had known when you were thinking about relocating and planting that you've learned over the last seven months in the planting process?
1: I would encourage myself to not feel like the church has to be kind of hitting on all cylinders from the very get-go. I was operating under the assumption that in order to constitute together as a church, in order to launch, we would need all the programs in place that we hope to have. But I think that some, you know, wiser, godlier brothers just gave me good counsel and said, hey, let's just get Sunday mornings right, and then we could phase in other stuff as the Lord gives us opportunity.
0: And you elected to get involved in church planting as opposed to stepping into an established church and either being on staff or taking over leadership of an established church. Just talk about that burden for church planting that God put on your heart. Yeah, well, I have
1: the highest regard for the work of church revitalization, and I was open to that kind of thing. Uh, but it j- just through a, a series of events, it seemed like in conversation with friends and even some fellow pastor friends here in Richmond, that church planning was the way to go. So my mentality was never church plant or bust. It's just what the Lord, it's the path he kind of paved before us.
0: Hmm. Well, I was telling you earlier that we gave everyone at our church in Little Rock a copy of your book on being ready for evangelism. I did a series back in the spring of 2022. We were going through John's gospel and we got to John 15, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And I said, okay, we're going to take a time out and spend the next five weeks looking at what that means. What does it mean to be witnesses? And I made everybody read. I I had assignments. I mean, I checked homework when people came to church on Sunday to see if they had read your book. So I'm grateful for that book. But we're going to back up and talk about a book that you wrote earlier, a book on the role of a deacon in a local church. And is this something you were, you were studying on an academic level that led to writing the book? Or was it as a part of church ministry that you dove in and tackled this subject?
1: I wish I could tell you that this was the book I was born to write. And I've had a, I've had a decades-long passion for deacons. In fact, I dressed up as a deacon for Halloween <laughs> as a kid. But no, uh, this, this was a book that I thought needed to be written. And I was asked to write it and agreed to do
0: so. And was it a journey of discovery for you? Did you carry some misconceptions about the role of the deacon into the study that you had to unpack in your own life?
1: No, not by that point, because I think the reason that Crossway and Nine Marks had asked me to write it is because they kind of trusted where I would go with it. Mm-hmm. by that point i had served twice as a deacon in two different kind of diaconal roles and it also served for several years as an elder so i was able to kind of see things from both sides experientially so i didn't have any major changes of mind while i was writing the book but i did uh you know, you know my i my convictions were definitely sharpened and solidified uh, i i came across stories from church history that galvanized my faith and kind of lifted my eyes to gain a more glorious view of the diaconate. So I think I think if anything, I I was convicted that I had maybe had too low a view of the diaconate, and studying to write the book really helped in that regard.
0: Of course, some of the people who are listening are used to a church environment where Elders aren't even talked about. There's a senior pastor and then there's a deacon board, and the deacon board serves as kind of a de facto board of directors for the local church. How did we get to a place in church history where that became the model when that doesn't seem to match what the New Testament teaches us about elders and deacons at all?
1: Oh, you're exactly right about that. I think especially in Baptist life, the language of elders can sound like a Presbyterian thing. (laughs) When in reality, it's a biblical thing, but it's also a Baptist thing if you just rewind the clock far enough. (laughs) So um, there's a lot of theories about kind of the why uh, in terms of why things changed. But I think a lot of it has to do with the entrance of pragmatism into the way we conceive of church ministry in the 20th century, taking our cues more from the business world where the pastor functions like a ceo the deacons function kind of like a board of directors and i think over the years there was kind of a withering away of the office of elder and into the vacuum came deacons who ended up and i think this is what you have in so many churches today well-meaning churches you have deacons who are functioning like what the bible calls elders And when that happens, not only are you missing out
0: as a church on biblical elders, but you're also missing out on biblical deacons. Mm -hmm. And uh, these two offices do get lumped together in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, where the qualifications for both elders and deacons are mapped out. And at some level, it looks like the qualifications are real similar with a few important distinctions between the two. Can you unpack that for us?
1: Yes. Another Passage where there aren't qualifications mapped out, but Philippians one one, the apostle Paul writes to three groups: the saints, the elders, and the deacons, all in the church at Philippi. So we see there those two offices, and I even think the priority of those offices. We can maybe talk about that later. But the, but the fact that he mentions elders first and deacons subordinate to the elders, I think, is not accidental. But in terms of the qualifications that you're asking about in, in 1 Timothy 3, compared to the qualifications that precede for elders, the key difference is that elders must be, quote, able to teach. That's 1 Timothy 3.2, whereas that's never said of deacons. Now, of course, Bob, that doesn't mean that a deacon may not teach. You might have a deacon who's an amazing teacher and preacher, but it just means a deacon doesn't have to be able to teach God's Word effectively in order to serve in that role. One other key difference is that the office of elder is more an office of authority, and the office of deacon is more an office of service. Now, it is possible to draw, I think, too sharp a distinction there, but Pastor H.B. Charles is helpful when he says that elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. Hmm. And so there is um, a—and I don't think that's a distinction without a difference—I think there is a sense in which deacons are meant to execute the vision and oversight of elders, not the reverse. It doesn't mean that deacons are JV Christians, but it just means that deacon, the office of deacon in a sense, reports to the office of elder and exists not just to make the elders' life and job easier, but ultimately to promote the unity of the whole church and to accelerate the ministry of the Word.
0: And of course the first time that we get any glimpse into the need for deacons is in Acts chapter six, where there's a crisis in the church because people aren't being cared for and being served. And that helps us understand the differentiation between what God calls elders to do and what God calls deacons to do, right? That's
1: right. There in Acts 6, which
0: is the most famous passage associated with
1: deacons, even though the noun doesn't show up, I think what we have there, uh, you have the 12 and the 7. The 12 are the apostles, who are kind of functioning like forerunners to elders, and then you have the 7, which are functioning like forerunners to what will become the office of deacon, and as you see how they interact with one another and the purpose for which the seven are raised up there to solve that crisis in the Jerusalem church, I think there's a lot we can derive about the work of a deacon, one of which is that deacons are meant to be shock absorbers in the life of the congregation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that deacons are meant to be those in a congregation, those people that are muffling shock waves, not making them reverberate further a godly deacon, an effective deacon, is someone where gossip and conflict goes to die. And we see that right there in Acts 6, because while the presenting issue was a food crisis, right, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution, that was just the occasion. Even more urgent was that this was a sudden threat to the very unity for which Jesus Christ had bled and died. And so the apostles, rather than just dismissing the Hellenists and saying, oh, you you angsty Hellenists, why can't you ever be happy? Like, look, look at all that God is doing. Why do you have to complain? No, they take the concern seriously. And rather than just imposing a swift, superficial solution and moving on, they actually establish a permanent solution in what will become an ongoing church office. So that speaks to the importance, not just of the ministry of the word, but of meeting practical and tangible needs for the unity to preserve and protect and promote the unity of the whole congregation.
0: I think that's an important point we make because we can often think of deacons as doing that functional service because somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to take care of these chores, and so we see them as chore men. The, the elders are chairmen and the deacons are chore men. There's a gospel purpose to serving in the office of a deacon, and that is the unity of the church and the serving of God's people in very real and tangible ways.
1: Yeah, and I I would say that there's basically two ways to get deacons wrong i mean of course there are many more but i think they can be summarized in two ditches we can easily fall into one is to wrongly elevate deacons into the role of de facto elders but the other is to wrongly reduce deacons or demote deacons to that of just kind of glorified janitors and that's what you're talking about treating deacons as little more than the building and grounds team Uh, Or if the focus in a particular church isn't on deacons as handymen, it might be on deacons as business managers or spreadsheet wizards. But of course, that falls far short of the Bible's really lofty vision for the office.
0: So as a pastor, I'm thinking of our deacons, and I'm thinking they're doing a lot with building and grounds at our church, and they're doing a lot with the spreadsheets and the budget at our church. Should I be trying to steer them away from that or trying to add to their assignment list? How should I be thinking rightly and trying to direct them and point them in the role that God's called them to?
1: Well, that's a very astute question. And I think the answer is no, it's not that they need to be doing less of that stuff. So much of that is the work of deaconing. It's grunt work, not stage work, right? So much of it is thankless and unseen. But what I think can sometimes happen in churches is that when pastors are looking for, or even church members are, are scanning the congregation for potential deacons, they're looking for who knows their way around Home Depot, which is a fine question to ask, but an also really relevant question is, do they know their way around their Bible? I mean again this doesn't mean they have to be able to stand up and preach a sermon this doesn't mean they have to have a master of divinity degree but in the qualifications in first timothy 3 paul does say that a deacon must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience well you can't hold to that which you don't know and so there is a sense in which deacons need to know their bibles when they're helping a widow move some heavy furniture and install some light bulbs and notice that she's struggling and is despondent and is lonely, you know, a qualified deacon is going to also pray for her. And I would say the reverse is that if a pastor is over visiting the widow to read scripture and pray with her and doesn't offer to move the heavy table, that he has failed in his role as pastor. So deacons need to remain spiritually aware and pastors need to remain practically aware even though there is a division of labor uh, between the offices.
0: Talk about the emphasis in mercy ministry for deacons, because that does seem to be one of the things the New Testament points us to, that deacons are to pay attention to those people in the congregation who have very tangible needs and meet those as ministers of mercy.
1: Well, this is the most, you could say, historic way that the diaconate has been envisioned. I mean, from the earliest centuries of church history, you see deacons functioning in this way, deacons caring for the sick and the poor and the distressed among the congregation and in the wider society, but especially among the congregation of the saints. And I think that even in the passage we mentioned earlier in Acts 6, we see that that was a tangible issue, that there were suffering discriminated against widows in the congregation who would have been entirely dependent on that congregation for their stability and their livelihood in a lot of ways in that ancient culture without a husband. And so yes, diaconal ministry encompasses mercy ministry, but I would just want to say that it, it's not less than mercy ministry, but it can be more that at the end of the day, the important lesson to draw from act six is not deacons, are mercy ministers and therefore they need to stay in their lane. No, the lesson to draw is they should be willing and able to do whatever is necessary in the life of the congregation, whatever the elders or pastors kind of need in order for those elders and pastors not to be depleted or distracted from the ministry of the word and prayer. And that that's going to look different
0: ways in different contexts. So you're seven months into church planting right now. Do you have elders and deacons in place in your church plant? We have elders. We don't have
1: deacons. We have what I would call proto-deacons. So we have volunteer leaders for various areas of service in the church, and those will probably become diaconal positions. But yeah, I wrote a book titled Deacons, and I don't yet have
0: deacons. (laughs) How how will you um, formalize that? So if you spot somebody and you say, I think this is somebody God may be setting apart to be a deacon, what's the process from Uh, You're observing them maybe being ready for that until they are installed in the office.
1: Yeah. Well, basically, the elders will be praying, kind of scanning the congregation. And and by the way, if you're a pastor listening to this, when you're eyeing future deacons, look for godly saints who see and meet needs discreetly. That is, they don't want or need credit. Who do so at their own expense. That is, they sacrifice. And who do so without being asked that they take initiative to solve problems. And so in consultation with the congregation, you know, we're we're always open to input from the congregation, we would essentially as elders decide that we want to create a diaconal position that would be overseeing a particular area of church life, maybe um, maybe facilities, maybe hospitality, maybe our bookstall, maybe sounds. And then we would at a members meeting We're an elder-led congregational church, so final authority for certain matters is in the hands of the gathered congregation. It would be a lot more efficient if (laughs) the three of us elders could just make these decisions at an elders meeting, but we don't think the Bible gives us that authority. So we would recommend to the congregation, we would nominate someone to fill that office, and then after a month or two layover, the congregation would
0: vote to install that person into the office. I assume they'll read your book before they're they're fully qualified to step into the office, right? Oh, they better, Bob. They better. <laughs> and you mentioned kind of observing a deacon for a specific area of service. Do you think pragmatically it's best to have deacons who are in charge of one landscape in church life as opposed to all of them trying to play every position on the baseball field? I
1: do. Now, I want to be clear. This, right now, we're in the realm of wisdom, not law. Right, right, But I think it can do a world of good if a deacon's purview is limited. Not because you don't trust the deacon. It's rather that it, it does help prevent the kind of mixed messaging and mission creep that can happen when deacons end up... Because here's another difference. I, I mentioned earlier a couple of differences between deacons and elders. Another difference is that elders according to the bible are responsible for the spiritual welfare of the whole congregation they're going to give an account to god for the souls of the whole flock whereas we're never told that deacons are responsible for the whole congregation and so i think if you give deacons kind of limited lanes to run in and you give them freedom as well they get a long leash it's hey we trust you we're not going to micromanage you but here's your lane and help Move our church from point A to point B in this way. Mobilize teams of volunteers. Organize practical service. Go for it. Limiting that purview, I think, will help to maintain that distinction between elders and deacons. It prevents the kind of—I'm not opposed to deacon boards, and I am aware that most, uh, at least Baptist churches, have a deacon board where they're meeting as a deliberative body. I think that can be done well. I want to be clear about that. But if you're planting a church and you don't have to do that, I think there can be a lot of wise reasons for actually not having your deacons meet as a deliberative body, but have each one kind of be a volunteer leader for a particular diaconal role and mobilize folks and report directly to the elders. So I explain some more reasons for that in the book if that's
0: confusing to any of the listeners. Well, and there's a link to the book in the show notes for the podcast. I'm wondering if you listened to, in preparation for writing the book, if you listened to the debate that took place a number of years ago between Tim Keller and Ligan Duncan on the subject of whether a woman can serve in the office of a deacon, I remember listening to it and remember thinking, these are two men who I respect, who love the Lord and who love the scriptures. And... Both of them made some really good points that were helpful for me in my thinking. I don't know if you listened to that debate, or I'm sure you've come down on a side in that debate, right? Well, the first appendix of the book is entirely devoted to this question.
1: And the first sentence is, if you flipped here before reading the rest of the book, shame on you, return to the table of contents and try again. But then, of course, I I say, you know, of course, I'm kidding, because it's an unavoidable question every church has to come down somewhere on whether christ installs women into the office of deacon and so what i do is i give the best possible argument i can against women deacons and then the best possible argument i can for women deacons and then at the end i i tip my hand to say i do believe that qualified sisters may serve as deacons and i even go farther and say i think a church impoverishes itself if it forbids what scripture allows but I do respect those who, who differ with me on it. But I think that if you look at First Timothy 3.11, Romans sixteen one, the witness of church history, and in the difference, this is the key, the difference between the office of
0: elder and deacon, then I think that a church can be well-served by qualified sisters. You know, I, I remember in the debate, Keller said that pragmatically, what was happening was they had all male deacons and the men were going home and the wives were saying, what did you talk about? And the men were saying, well, we need to do this and this and this. And the wives were saying, well, I can do that. And so whether they were officially deacons or not, they were doing diaconal ministry. And we'll link to that debate so that if folks want to listen to both sides, and of course, the appendix in your book presents both sides as well. And you're right. Every church has to decide how they're going to carry that out, how they're going to implement that. And then we need to have charity in our disagreement in that area and not see this as a primary issue among gospel-believing, gospel-centered churches. So uh, for a pastor who's in a situation, he he stepped in to do church revitalization, and the church has always had a senior pastor who was kind of the CEO and the deacons who were the board of directors, and he's thinking, i got my work cut out for me what would you recommend his steps be in getting to a place where there are biblically qualified elders, biblically qualified deacons, and the church is structured the way the New Testament maps it out for us? With the qualification that it
1: really depends on context, because in a lot of cases, my advice would be go ASAP, as slow as possible. (laughs) Play the long game here, right? What kind of a church Do you want to be in 10 years? If you move too quickly on this, you won't be there in 10 years. Having said that, I think the main way to lead on this is through the ministry of the word. And so that steady, slow drip of teaching God's word, helping to maybe deprogram some misunderstandings of deacons that are rooted more in custom and tradition than in God's word doesn't mean that people who get it wrong are Pharisees, though I just did on Sunday preach the beginning of Mark 7 and Jesus saying, hey, we need to be careful that we are not leaning more weight on the traditions of man than on the commandments of God. And I think that that is applicable to the way a lot of churches think about deacons. We've never done it that way as sort of as far as they're willing to go. I also think that showing the congregation what they're missing out on so not just showing them hey here it is in the bible but showing them that actually if we have a plurality of elders that is a plurality of pastors and a plurality of deacons it's going to have spillover positive effects for everyone this is not a turfy territorial thing where the elders are and this happens in churches it's so sad that the elders essentially are like we're responsible for everything in the church that's spiritual so stay out of our lane, and the deacons are well. We're responsible for everything that's practical or physical. So you need to stay out of our lane. And what you end up having is this kind of bicameral legislature, right? That's where we've got the house and the senate, and and the deacons kind of view it as their role to check and balance every decision of the elders to kind of play chaperone. And if necessary, to hold the elder's feet to the fire or the pastor's feet to the fire. Th- that's such a sadness and such a tragedy in the life of, of a church. And I think that's why, I mean, Satan has a field day in situations like that, where there's the soil of suspicion and mistrust. And back to what I said earlier, Bob, about deacons needing to be shock absorbers. This means that the deacons in a church, far from being the ones who are going to be hard to please easy to offend. They actually need to be the ones in the church that are hard to offend and easy to please. Like, they need to be the lead encouragers, the ones who are standing in the gap, assuming the best, promoting the harmony of the whole, which is beautiful when it happens, but far too often in churches, that has not been the case.
0: Well, I hope this conversation has been helpful for you as you think about leadership structure in your church. And I think Matt's point about how, when you have healthy plurality, both at the elder level and then with the deacons, really you've opened the door to a church functioning in a glorious way, in a way that is vibrant and in a way that's sustainable, where the load of ministry is being shared and where God is at work through his people in a variety of ways. I hope this is something that you will continue to make a priority in your church. We mentioned a lot of resources today. Of course, Matt's book Deacons is a book that we'd recommend to you. I also mentioned the debate that I heard between Tim Keller and Ligon Duncan, the audio of that debate. There are links to those in the show notes. We've included a link to uh, the website for river city Baptist church in Richmond, And there's a link to the Great Commission Collective website as well. If you are interested in church planting, maybe you are wondering if God is calling you to that kind of ministry. One of the things we do at GCC is to help evaluate, equip, train, and launch church planters. We're a collective of about 150 churches around the world, and our goal is to see healthy, sustainable churches planted more and more in our world. If you think that's something God might be calling you to, get in touch with us at GCC. Find out how you can be evaluated and considered to become a Great Commission Collective church planter. Again, the information is available in our show notes or go to our website, gccollective.org. Next time on The Bounce, Scott Hollingshead is going to join us. We're going to talk about how we can develop a healthy missional ecosystem in our church. How can we be a church that is on mission and where our people have a missional mindset? That comes up next time on The Bounce.